save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. This is Ellie Weiss and I welcome my guest Mark Beckoff, Professor Emeritus at Colorado University at Boulder, or is that University of Colorado at Boulder, and uh, his new book titled The Animal's Agenda with his co-author author, uh, Jessica Pierce. So um, Animal's Agenda is about freedom, compassion, and coexistence in the human age, and he makes an argument, uh, the authors are making an argument, that the science of animal welfare versus animal well-being. So we're going to have a deep conversation today. So first off, uh, we're going to jump right in. So welcome back, Mark. Well, I'm glad to be here, Ellie, and thanks for chatting with me um, about our new book. We're quite excited about it, and um, I look forward to telling your listeners more. Absolutely. So it's going to be a very interesting conversation today. There's been a tremendous increase over, I'm going to say, the last five, ten years in the profile of animal rights and animal welfare so um and you had made a comment that's in your book and in some other interviews that whenever you see the word welfare in the literature you can be pretty sure something unpleasant is being done to animals so how about we jump in and if you could elaborate on this a little bit by explaining first off the difference between welfare and well-being Yeah, that's a great place to jump, and that's really the motivation that Jessica and I had when we started talking about four years ago about the book. Um, The basic difference is that the science of animal well-being focuses on individual animals. The, The life of every single individual animal counts, and um, it's consistent, actually, with the goals of the rapidly developing field called compassionate conservation, which is based on the tenets of first do no harm and the life of every individual matters. Animal welfare, and it has definitely, the science of animal welfare has definitely helped numerous animals. There's no doubt about it. But Jessica and I feel that it really hasn't done enough because it really doesn't focus on individuals per se, nor does it focus on the concept of freedom. So the best example would be, you know, people will say like New Zealand has this predator-free New Zealand by 2050 program going. And it's a welfare program because they want to get rid of all invasive animals and they're going to kill them, quote, as humanely as possible. Of course, they're using traps, snares, and poisons such as 1080. One argument people say is, well, it doesn't really matter, you know, if we kill some or kill, you know, these animals because they're invasive. Some will play the numbers game and go, well, you know, there's a there's a thousand or a million of them. So it doesn't really matter if we kill some of them. And well, it matters to the animals who are killed. And so welfareists play the numbers game often like that. Well, there's a million of a particular um individuals of a number of a a given species so we can kill some. The science of animal well-being says no, that every individual life matters and they have inherent value um, or what people call intrinsic value because they are, because they're alive and they're breathing beings. Okay, I I have to ask a question here because I've spoken with Will Stolzenberg and other biologists and Mm -hmm. um, folks. So in the case of New Zealand or the Aleutian Islands that have uh, incredible avian populations and didn't have any native predators until we came along. So they did conservation by eradication of getting rid of cats, rats, and things like that to protect endangered species such as the kakapo Mm -hmm. so how do we apply what you just said to an invasive species where you're trying to protect something that is critical critical 
I mean, well, how do yeah. we balance that out? Who's more important? And I know this is part of the point of this book. Right. Well, they're all important. And we were part of the problem. We were the problem in getting these invasive animals to a location. And so we are obligated, in my view, to, if we want to save natives in lieu of non-natives or invasives uh, or whatever, pests, whatever pejorative word is used, then we have to do it humanely. And so there are ways and, and without killing. So there's, you know, we jump in the gun maybe. I don't think so, though. It, we, there's um, ways that you can use what's called chemosterilization by putting chemicals out in the problem uh, into the um, population to render them infertile. Um, you know, you can basically move them around, which... That was done in one case. They moved all the cats to another island. Yeah, so you can move them, which... You know, my, people might say, well, that's not humane. Well, it's a lot more humane than poisoning or snaring or shooting or trapping them. But I think the main argument, once again, and it also comes down to not only are there ethical problems, but there are biological questions. Um, you know, how long does an animal have to be someplace before, you know, they're called native? And so one of the things that a lot of people overlook, although it's not because these people are stupid, but they just overlook the fact that ecosystems are in evolving and changing entities. So when you remove a predator or all predators from a certain location, you know, it could be a location of different sizes, you're altering the evolution and the, that, um, the ongoing nature and integrity of that ecosystem. And you know, a lot of biologists worry, so you remove all the predators. Well, <laughs> number one, you're also removing other animals because the techniques they use are nonspecific. But number two, you're pulling out a main component of that ecosystem. Absolutely. And, so, and that, that, I mean, just to talk about predator removal, I'm a predator yeah. person. I'm, I mean, that's always been my focus, carnivores and predators. And even Colorado, we have a predator control program ever since um, Department of Wildlife merged with parks. So now we have parks and wildlife, which are um, polar opposites to each other. You can't do the same thing in one ecosystem and we're killing off lions and bears to see if that will make a difference for deer and elk. Yeah. So pulling out, I mean, I, I totally get what you're saying and I, I tend to agree with you. It's a complex um, series of thoughts of where do you draw the line? Do you draw the line in what animal's agenda is bringing up? So it's an important book. So um, when we target a specific particular component of the ecosystem such as predators yes you're really messing with things but let's talk about this in a more global sense of balance of welfare and well-being and for right now let's hold it to um, the science the differences in, in science and then we're going to get deeper into this as we move along sure okay so um, let's start with Help us understand the science, your frustration with the science of welfare to well-being. Yeah, so the science and the frustration is simply that the people who are practicing, say, animal welfare, doing research in it or applying it, I'm not saying they don't care about other animals. Some people do, but I think that would be wrong. But really what they're saying is that you know, we're going to have to change the lives of these animals, which usually means killing them. You know, they often say they're euthanizing them, but they're not euthanizing them. They're killing them because euthanasia would be, you know, a mercy killing, like when you sadly have to put a companion animal to sleep um, because they're in interminable pain or they're terminally ill. And so that's the problem is, is that once again, it ignores the importance of that individual's life to that individual. And if you take a broader view, it ignores the importance of that individual's life to, say, the ecosystem in which the, you know, they live. And 
it gets back to, you know, what I was saying before and what you're saying is that, you know, ecosystems are dynamic entities. And so just removing all the predators, which they're not going to be able to do, number one, um, and removing them humanely, which, of course, they're not going to be able to do to the millions of animals who have to be killed. Um, so removing them really means that they're trading off the life of the life of an individual of one species to save another species. And an important point that the book does um, make a point of pointing out, sorry to reuse that word several times, <laughs> but that in these this decision-making process of this science is who are we doing it for? We're doing it for us. At the end of every equation, it's usually about us, Absol- humans. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm not saying, you know, that we don't count, but, but once again, I think overall it's just a naive um, view of the effects of our interfering in natural processes. And so, these an- like I said, you know, these animals have become key components of an ecosystem. The ecosystem is vol- evolving. And so there's no reason to think that the ecosystem that's going to result is going to be, quote, better or necessarily more natural. And populations need control and I don't I mean you know frankly, human population needs control we're not talking well, about yeah. that I didn't want to go there yet but, <laughs> but, um, but you know they need some kind of control on numbers and density and I I mean if I were you know people have asked me well if you could design evolution would you have done you know the predator prey scenario no because I don't want animals to die but that's the way it is and and I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but that's the way it is. There's, there's predators and there's prey animals. And there's native animals, you know, once again, getting back to, you know, how you define, you know, um, who's native and who's, you know, a pest or who's been, you know, um, introduced. Um, you know, or like I said before, how long do they have to be there? But these are really, really important questions. And so it's a, it feels good to people who say, you know, for example, New Zealand's been in the news a lot for their Predator Free by 2050 program. It feels good. We're going to return to nature. No, or what's natural. No, you're not. You're not going back to an ecosystem that used to be. The other example, and once again, it's a project that I really like, although I certainly see some ethical questions, was the reintroduction of wolves to Yellowstone. Now, the people doing this work didn't necessarily claim it, but I've heard countless people say, well, yeah, they're returning the ecosystem to what it was, say, you know, 90 or 100 years ago. No, they're not. (laughs) I mean, the ecosystem 90 or 100 years ago was a completely different ecosystem with wolves than Yellowstone is today with wolves. Absolutely. And well, so there's the biology of it. I mean, you know, I mean, it gets to me to be a very, it, it comes down to me to be a very simple thing to say that, you know, remaining neutral on certain projects right now, um, whether it was a good thing to do or a bad thing to do, but they surely are not returning to what was. It's just, and so. I know a lot of the, you know, really good ecologists, conservation biologists, and they'll always agree. But I think to the public, and why I think your 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 show and some other shows I've been on are so important is that the public reads this stuff, and you know they yield to authority, which is fine in a lot of cases, and they'll go, well, I heard so and so say. Returning wolves to Yellowstone is returning to what it was 100 years ago, or getting rid of all the predators in New Zealand is returning to what it was, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. No, they're not. <laughs> well, it's, it, can't, it can't happen because everything else is changing. It's an exactly. evolving system along with us, taking up so much well, of the room and forcing smaller and smaller, smaller 
corridors and habitats with lesser buffer zones for wildness and wildlife to do what it does, which is live, eat each other, and procreate, and while they're doing it, having full emotional lives. So that's sort of what we want to get back to is the emotional lives and the emotional complexity of animals, non-human neighbors on this planet, right? Yeah, and they're, and that's a good way to put it. So they're not only ignoring the dynamic nature and the ever-changing nature of ecosystems rather than being static entities, they're also ignoring what we're doing to these individuals as individuals and the pain, suffering, and death we're calling and once again, um, we're, we're responsible for. And once again, you know, when you talk about New Zealand, because it's been in the news, is that New Zealand recognized two years ago, rec- basically passed legislation that recognized non-human animals as sentient beings. And so I get emails all the time now, people going, well, they know these animals suffer. And what do they say about that? And then what they do is they hide behind the cloak of welfare and go, well, we're going to kill them in the most humane way. And, you know, like I said before, you're talking about millions upon millions of animals. There's no way they're all or even a small fraction is going to be killed, quote, humanely or people say with empathy and compassion. Come on. I mean, well, it's, it's our definition of empathy and compassion. I often say, even if animals could speak English, would we understand what they're saying? So here's a concept that people, first off, sort of need to accept is that animals are emotive. It's a different emotion. It doesn't, you know, we try to relate it to how we feel, happy, sad, or whatever. And maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. But the the simple um, premise is life is emotive. Exactly. And what you just said is, you know, people, you know, since I've studied emotions for so many years, people will go, well, their emotions aren't like ours. Well, nobody said they would be. And... You know, I always say there's dog joy, dog pain, elephant joy, elephant grief, dog grief. And then I talk about some examples that are personal, um, that, you know, my grief may be different from your grief. My joy may be different from your joy. But, but that doesn't mean I have it and you don't or vice versa. And so the argument that all their emotions aren't like ours, so they don't have these feelings. It's a name. And it's and certainly today, if you will, <laughs> but in the last many decades, it's anti-science because all the research shows how emotive, if you will, or um, shows the rich and deep emotional lives that these animals have. And then you can get back to the basics. If people didn't think they did, then why, would, why are they looking at enrichment programs or why are they arguing about how humane their actions are? I mean, if you think, you know, a dog or a stoat or a possum or other animals are unfeeling, you know, I don't necessarily worry about how I treat my backpack. I don't think my backpack is sentient. So the very fact that they recognize the sentience and the very fact that they talk about humane ways to kill these animals means that they know darn well what they're doing. And that is an excellent point, and it's an excellent place uh, to take a break. So, folks, stick with us. We're going to be right back because this is an intensive conversation, and it's very important for today's world. So stick with us, and we'll be right back. Wildlife. No wild. No life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. 
Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. Welcome back. This is Ellie and my guest, Mark Beckoff. And we're discussing Mark and Jessica's new book, The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. So we've already gotten rather deep into the this conversation in the first section. So we're going to come back around and bring this a little more narrow focus about our companion animals and captivity. And we've talked about the differences a little bit between welfare and um, well-being. So let's bring this down and drill it down into our companions and uh, pets and livestock and the concept of enrichment and where you left off on our first section that we use, we toss around this word humane. So we know we're being inhumane in trying to create better cages yeah i mean you know we always say you know animals want they don't want bigger cages they want no cages and i'm a realist i understand that that's not always going to happen but it makes the point that animals want more freedom number one and what i often do in my talks and when i write is i bring it home if you will and talk about companion animals such as dogs and cats and, you know, it could be hamsters and gerbils and rats and mice. What people don't realize is that these animals are captive. And I don't mean that in a negative or a pejorative sense, but they're captive because, you know, they're living in a, they're trying to live in and trying to adapt to a human dominated world. I mean, if, you know, if we weren't so concerned, you know, about them, then we wouldn't have leashes and other ways to confine them. So it's not negative to say that dogs, for example, are captive animals, but they are captive animals. We rob them of their dogginess, if you will, and we don't allow them to do, you know, very basic things like dogs like to do, like sniff and pee here and there and mount and hump their friends and play and use their noses to sniff all over, including, you know, people's bodies and dogs' bodies. And I'm not saying that in any funny sense. It's just we rob them of the ability um, for them to exercise their senses. And one of the uh, messages in a book I have coming out in a month and a half called Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do, is to say, let dogs be dogs, number one. And number two, recognize there's no animal as the dog, that dogs are as different as people can be. And so what works for Harry may not work for Sam, and what works for Mary may not work for Peter or Paula. And people go, oh, of course. <laughs> and, and, you know, in that same thinking can be applied to wildlife as well you know, what what works for one pride of lions doesn't necessarily work for another and they all do know their neighbors so um in yeah. every ecosystem whether it be wild or in um our homes i think what you're saying is we 
manage their lives so that they don't have complete control over what they would choose to do at any given time. Yeah. And management, you know, means control. And once again, it's not necessarily, you know, ill-willed. It's just a fact of life. If you're going to live with, you know, a particular animal in a human-dominated society, in a city or a town, even out in the country, then you're responsible for their lives and for giving them the very best life they can have. And you're factoring in, if you will, dangers, which could be, cars and other people and of course it could be you know predators who are in the area and one of the things that I learned from years of field work on coyotes even when I studied Adelie penguins in Antarctica th- these penguins who quote look all alike really are not always looking the same and what works for one doesn't work for another I mean it's fun to watch these animals, you know, we, on the rookery we were at, there were about a quarter of a million of them, and we certainly didn't get to know all of them, but the animals or the individuals with whom I became familiar, they're really different personalities. Um, and that, so, That's so true, because I've done the same thing with lions and elephants, yeah. so many of the people I work with. We have a tendency, like on safari or a nature trip, to look at one as a representative of all. But when yeah. you're actually studying them and you learn to identify individuals, um, which is very it, much of the norm these days when in field work, you identify individuals. So let's... Let's go back here for a second. So let's say you're the person that has your dog or your cat or whatever pet, and you're giving it the best life you think is possible, providing enrichment, protecting it from dangers because it's living in our society and there's certain things we accept and certain things we don't want to have happen to them. So how do we go back and define the difference between welfare and well-being in that in in this case sure so right so once again you know the welfare attitude would be well we're doing the best they can in the name of humans and you know there's going to be certain compromises that have to be made and even well-being would recognize that But once again, the science of animal well-being focusing on individuals would say what works for Peter the dog doesn't necessarily work for Paul the dog because they are unique individuals as are Adelie penguins or lions or horses or goats or chimpanzees. I mean, you know. So so would you say it's somebody that you know, um, the penguin you've met or the dog that's yours, so to speak? we have a different relationship because it's tangible versus the pack of dogs or the feral cat colony? Yeah, I mean, colonies and packs are made up of individuals, but like you said before, if you look at a pack of coyotes or a pack of wolves or a pride of lions or, you know, a brood of birds as taken as a whole, they vary as a function of which individuals make up, you know, the cohort, if you will. Right. So so when people, and you know, this, and I understand where it's coming from as kind of a long-term field biologist. At first, what people would do is you'd go out and you'd describe species typical behavior. So you've got wolf packs and you can, it's possible to packs of coyotes or prides of lions. And then you really refine your work over time by really focusing in on individuals and individual differences and when you do that once again there's no there's no way to escape the the conclusion that each lion or cat or dog or goldfish is a unique individual and therefore we have to be concerned with their well-being we have to be asking ourselves are we giving each and every one of those beings the very best life we can in a human-dominated world, recognizing that there's going to be some compromises. But the important thing, I think, that we have to really do with our companion animals is accept the fact that they are struggling to adapt to our world 
So in my book and elsewhere and other people surely have also argued that we're looking for mutual tolerance based on respect and dignity, based on the fact that each of these individuals has a life that matters. And so we're not going to just lump them and say the dog or the lion. because. So, so how, a, I'm sorry. So how yeah. do we, in, in the book, one of the questions that an interview interviewer asked you is what is the knowledge translation gap? So I'd say your average pet owner, you know, good pet owner, and I, I'm not going to, I'm just going to leave it at that, who cares about their animals and provides the best life possible. Like, I have five cats. I don't swoop down and pick them up and snuggle them because I feel often that it's interfering. You know, I wouldn't want somebody to come down and swoop up me when I'm not in the mood. (laughs) And, you know, I built them this incredible outdoor cat habitat because I have coyotes, foxes, lions, bears, but they have the freedom to run around. Yes, it's contained, but, you know, I give them as much freedom and well-being as I possibly can. And mm-hmm. they're, I'd say they're pretty happy, spoiled, rotten little cats. But mm-hmm. um, at the same time, I'd say your average pet lover, animal lover, understands um, this in the in the specific sense sense when you drill down. So how do we translate this up to the next level? That gap from your dog, your friend's dog, to all dogs, to all um, insects, to all birds, yeah. to all wildlife. How do we scale that up? Well, like I said, I oftentimes will say to people when something, you know, horrific has happened, would you do it to your dog? And I'm doing it to generate that sort of conversation using um, dogs to um, bridge the empathy gap. The knowledge translation gap you're talking about is also crucial because what it basically says, and and the evidence is there, I mean, one could probably think of countless examples in, in, in no time, is we're not using what we know on behalf of the other animals. So... Like New Zealand, if they say, well, yeah, animals are sentient, and then they launch a program to kill as many predators as they can, it just doesn't make sense because they're not using what we know to take care of these animals and give them the best lives possible. And so, you've discussed this before. It comes down in one of our programs with you, previous episodes, who lives, who dies, and why, and then um, the Animal Manifesto and Wild Justice. All of these are important books that bring the reader, my audience, listeners here, up, scaling up these thought processes to think more inclusively about other lives, non-human lives. Yeah, right. And so if you go back to, say, dogs... And um, you could say, well, we want to have them bridge the empathy gap. So, for example, a few years ago, I gave a talk in Australia about some of their very questionable and inhumane wildlife management or control practices. And the talk was called, Would You Kill Your Dog for Fun? And, you know, I was very pleased. They expected, you know, 50 people and a couple hundred came but once again, I was doing it to make light, to, to sort of bring to light that this is how they treat kangaroos. And so they go out and spotlight them and shoot them and poison them and torture them. And so it actually generated a really good conversation because dogs are no more sentient or less sentient, if you will, than kangaroos or mice or rats. And we had a really good discussion saying, well, you know, if you have these feelings about your dog and you wouldn't allow your dog to be spotlighted or trapped or snared or poisoned, then why do you allow other animals? And some people go, well, you know, this gets back to the welfare argument in a way. Well, there's a lot of dogs, but there's only a handful of particular members of other species. Well, once again, the life of each dog matters to them. And so, once you, you know, you're trading off the life of one dog for the good of another species or because there's, because there's millions of dogs. And that would be welfare. Once again, the numbers game. 
the well-being argument says, no, the life of each and every dog matters, and we are obligated to give them the, vet, the very best lives possible, each, each individual the very best life possible. So does and, this translate over to breeding? We should not be breeding any more of these animals, just like we should not be building any more cars? Well, some people have taken that. My take on it, of course, and this is, you know, we could probably, yeah, I'll just say it because it could lead to a, another book or another show with you, <laughs> is we don't need any more purebred dogs. That's for sure. I mean, we just, we need dogs. We need people to rescue and adopt and foster all the dogs who need homes. Right. And, and, you know, once again, I'm not saying, you know, certainly not everyone agrees with that. But once again, when you get down to the argument, you know, you've got a, you know, you've got a surplus. And I don't mean that in, in any sense of the word in a negative way. But you've got all these dogs who need homes. And then people are going out and spending thousands of dollars for designer dogs. And I'm not saying that, you know, in a democracy or, or in, you know, society, you know, like ours where people should have the choice. But what I'm saying is, and I really spend a lot of time talking to people about this, is I bet you if they try hard enough, most of them will find a dog or a, a companion animal of their choice who really needs a home. Right. And not just as an accessory. No. No, like, like it's funny because I'm writing this article. Um, I, I've written an article recently, you know, that dogs and other animals shouldn't just be given as gifts as a surprise. And last night on the Grammys, James Corbin was giving out dogs as consolation prizes. Oh. It, Ellie, it blew my mind. I had to shake my head and go, wait a minute. And, of course, I wrote to some people about it. And now I'm in the middle of writing an essay about it. But now it's gone viral. He was giving out dogs as consolation prizes to people who didn't win a Grammy Ugh. as if dogs are second-class citizens. And, okay, I know dog behavior, and maybe I see things people don't see, but a number of emails I've gotten said, hey, did you look at those dogs? They were stressed. And, and yes, it was done as a joke. Bad joke. Very <laughs> bad. bad joke. Very, very bad joke. Dogs are not consolation prizes. They're not second-class citizens. They're not non-sentient beings. And I'm looking forward to using this once again as an example that we can apply to wild animals. If, if, if you wouldn't do it to your dog, why do you allow wolves to get shot and snared and trapped and tortured? Why do you allow kangaroos? Why do people go out and trophy hunt? I mean, you know as well as I do, and maybe better, that when you start focusing on dogs and using them to bridge the empathy gap, you better have a lot of time on your hands because the examples that exist for which you can use the dog to close the empathy gap are unfortunately countless. Right. Yeah. Well, you and I could elucidate on this forever, you yeah. know, and use every living being as an example. Life matters. Yeah. And that's what this planet is all about, is it's life-giving, but it also has self-control mechanisms, predator-prey relationship that we talked about, that it is also life-taking. And in that way, it becomes a sustainable um, floating ball in space and we humans have unbalanced that so at the moment we need to step away and take a break so um, listeners come back look up uh, markbeckoff.com and uh, you'll find his previous books a lot of interesting articles and a lot that he has to say pick up this book animals agenda freedom compassion and coexistence in the human age and stick with us because we're going to talk a little bit more we'll be right back Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. 
Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with my guest, Mark Beckoff. And we're talking about animal lives and that every individual matters. And his new book with co-author author, Jessica Pierce, The Animal's Agenda, Freedom, Compassion, and Coexistence in the Human Age. So as you can tell by now, Mark and I could go on and on about this, and perhaps we will in another episode. But um, we're trying to bring about to our listeners the thinking to get people thinking about the bigger scope of all lives matter and compassionate coexistence. So um, there's a phrase going on these days in terms of animal rights, animal welfare, and the gap between those in humane washing. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, I mean, (coughs) humane washing which is a term that, you know, Jessica came up with as we were writing our book is really exactly what we're talking about. It basically means, well, we have to kill some animals. So we're going to just do it in as humane way as possible. And nobody in their right mind would, would accept the fact that number one, it's particularly humane. And number two, that all the animals are going to be, you know, taken care of, um, in the most compassionate and empathic way. And so it just basically also just brings out the point that animal welfare science fails millions of animals. And when I say that, I really want to be clear to say that, yes, it can also help many animals, but it's not the panacea. You know, it's just not the kind of, you know, wrapping that solves all the problems or contains all the problems and alleviates them. And so, you know, once again, the science of animal well-being is basically saying that every individual matters, the lives of every individual matters. And so even if you can, quote, kill an animal humanely and however you choose to do it, it, it completely skirts the question of whether you should be doing it and it completely ignores the fact, and I mean the very fact, that the life of every animal matters. And I wrote recently about a new, really in-depth study of animal consciousness by a whole bunch of hardline researchers and scientists. And I was so happy that, number one, they concluded that we shouldn't be so, you know, we shouldn't be so quick in excluding other animals or certain other animals from the consciousness and sentience club. But it also made the point that the data show that they have a lot of the same likes and dislikes and desires we have in terms of being treated with respect and dignity and feeling safe and secure. Well, that's, I mean, to me, that's like a no-brainer. All you have to do is watch two dogs of course. <laughs> talk to each other. One that's been coddled and, you know, the, the, the 
caregiver is constantly yelling, you know, blah, 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 angel, blah, 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 angel, and the dog keeps barking. It's kind of reiterating the same thing the person does. And you can see a dog that speaks dog, that's a a balanced, you know, well, he knows he's a dog and he's a great dog, go up to a dog that's kind of unbalanced and tell them that they're being... um, an idiot you know you can tell when one dog is telling another dog you're being a jerk and um we often get in the middle of that and stop that conversation from happening between the animals because we think it's not it it should be prohibited or that um our dog is bothering somebody yeah that's the whole point about letting dogs express their dogness knowing that there are things they want to do that we find disgusting or, um, you know, just inappropriate. And, yeah, there are things I've lived with a lot of dogs. There are things they do that I don't particularly like. But I want them to be dogs as much as they can. And in that, they're allowed to correct one another. Yes, and, and they do. And one of the places you see it a lot is in play where they do correct one another by saying, hey, I thought we were playing, but, but you, you know. You stepped over the line. You stepped over the line, exactly. And, and one of the things that, you know, this gets back into is this kind of hands-off or relatively hands-off way in which we interact with other animals and let them solve their own conflicts. And there's a lot of people, you know, getting back – you know, once again, using examples with dogs and getting back to more global issues in conservation, you know, there's a good number of conservation biologists who just say, well, you know, what we want to do hasn't really worked. And so let's take a relatively hands off of you and let's see what happens. At least see what happens and, and give, that, um, give that alternative a chance to work and see what happens and you know people go oh well are you saying you know that conservation biologists never have successes no i'm not saying that at all but what i am saying is these mass killing campaigns where they want to wipe out one species to save another or wipe out members of one species to save other members of that species they don't work you know and well, when you let's, have- let, let, i'm sorry let's take this to a smaller community a zoo sure. Okay, yeah. so it's it's an abnormal group, very rarely, or even a canned lion farm or something like that. It's an abnormal group. It's not how a, a, the, the dynamic of a pride structure would work. It's a created group of individuals. And mm-hmm. in, the, in this case, the individual does matter to the zookeepers and the keepers. And we've seen such transition in zoo science from, okay, let's say London years ago when you see a lion pacing an eight by six cage to habitats and enrichment and giving you know moving a lion into the leopard so that they have uh different smells and we call this enrichment and supposedly reflecting what goes on in the wild of a neighbor of animals moving through a neighborhood so how do we translate this and humane washing to that kind of an example. Yeah, it's a great example. I mean, you know, if you, the essence of captivity and the prime and one of the prime examples of human domination of nature would be zoos, you know, and you know, including aquaria, uh, you know, land zoos, terrestrial zoos, and, and water zoos. Well, we apply it in the same way. So, you know, one thing I say is we don't need to breed any more captive animals who are going to spend the rest of their lives in captivity. So we can stop the captive breeding. We could phase out moving animals and zoos around as musical objects, musical chairs, musical animals for breeding. Um, You know, we could stop what I call zoothanasia, killing animals in zoos who can no longer say, contribute to a gene pool you know they're considered useless or surplus and people go oh zoos don't do that yeah and they do and they do it by the thousands so i call that zoothanasia because zoos try to sanitize it by calling it euthanasia and it's not euthanasia 
Once again, it's not like putting your dog to sleep who's terminally ill or in, in terminal pain. These are healthy individuals, often very young individuals, whose lives are being stolen and robbed from them. Well, and Copenhagen so, Zoo is a yeah. great example yeah, where they so, um, ki- killed the lion. To well, they, they killed the giraffe, they and killed then they marriage. killed the giraffe to feed the lion, and then yeah. they killed the lions, and they did yeah. it very publicly. So I can see in one sense making it public and you know exposing children to it. And some people were absolutely horrified, and others were saying, no, it's a learning experience. So this is a double-edged sword here. It's not that we want to protect or remove from sight. And maybe this is what you're talking about, that zoos remove from the sight of the public all the shenanigans that are going on behind the scenes. Exactly. They do it behind closed doors, and they don't like to talk about it. But once again, you know, people have begun talking about it and you know they've just come right out and said look you know the conditions at a particular zoo are horrific and the animals aren't thriving and and you know along those lines there's a whole move to make zoos into sanctuaries there's a move to provide sanctuaries for all these captive cetaceans at horrific places like SeaWorld and no, these animals can't be returned to the wild. Some people go, well, return them. You know? It, it, well, it brings up the point of, you know, sanctuary is great. That if we turn zoo into sanctuary, it's a step in the right direction. But sanctuary is also being filled with orphans. So what we're not really addressing here is what is creating all these orphans. Oh. Well, I mean, the bottom line, of course, and, you know, it's... It's a no-brainer, and it's not a conversation stopper. But the bottom line is there's too many humans. We are taking the Earth over. You know, people call it the Anthropocene, the age of humanity, and I call it the rage of inhumanity. I like that. People, you know, people get upset with that kind of, you know, talk. But the fact of the matter is you you can't deny it, Ellie. The fact of the matter is there's too many of us. We're here, there, and everywhere, as the Beatles said. And if people want to focus on that, and that's what that's one of the messages I try to put out because I'm an optimist and I try to think positively. And what I'm trying to say very simply is, look, I don't like zoos. They exist. We got to give right now as today. I mean, literally today. We have to give every zoo resident the best life possible as we work to phase them out as we know them. But let's talk about the big issue. And the big issue is, is we're taking over the earth in this epoch that's now officially called the Anthropocene. And we are doing horrific things to non-human animals in their homes. And by the way, to human animals in their homes in marginalized, you know, developing countries. We don't need to get into that today. But the fact of the matter is, is once again, if we look at institutions like zoos, Once again, if we look at different um, conservation projects, we see that the bottom line is that we've taken over land. So in New Zealand, getting back to that, they have no problem just destroying land for the dairy industry. And if a lot of that land were open, then they wouldn't have such a pest problem. Right. It's 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 messy out there. And, you know, I know we're going to close soon. I just hope that people youngsters especially who are you know going to be representing future generations i love interacting with students who are interested in compassionate conservation and different aspects of conservation i hope that they will if you will understand what's going on and do something right now to change it and that's that's the goal of this program is redefining what conservation is and compassionate conservation is a critical addition because conservation itself has been hijacked um, into a product you know all these NGOs and it's fractured we do not it, as, as we are right now my feeling is animal welfare and animal well-being does not have the clout that the industrialized farming or corporate entities have 
we've fractured our landscape into different parts of the pie. So we're never going to quite match the industrial complex. So as you just said, we have to get our youth and our kids understanding and filling in this knowledge gap that compassionate coexistence of all life on earth counts and that when we become you know bring in our balance of what we can do versus with what we should or should not do we will start making a difference and we can turn that care into action yep and that's in all honesty that's exactly what Jessica and my book, The Animal's Agenda, is all about. And once again, that's really the focus of my forthcoming book on dogs, exactly as you put it. And once again, it's showing the similar problems that arise, which a lot of people don't see. And it gets back to one of the important things we discussed, and it's it's actually a good place to stop, is bridging that empathy gap. So well, we've got we've got a couple minutes here, so I'm going to ask the big question. You you were frustrated with science and the science of animal welfare that it didn't go far enough into animal well-being of every individual, whether it be captive, um, companion, or wild. So the question is: Can science save animals? No, science will not save animals. Sci- that's not anti-science. Science is important. It generates important information. But what's going to save animals, and it's this message that I wrote about a lot in my book, Rewilding Our Hearts, people are going to have to make deep personal transformations and allow their feelings to influence their actions. And when you talk to people, it gets back to this concept of biophilia or the innate or you know genetic or it's in our genes um ties into nature we're going to have to have people say how does this situation make you feel and then act on those feelings and i believe you know once again (laughs) i was going to say you know you can write many books on it it's what really motivated my book rewilding our hearts is that we need people to accept responsibility for what they do And we need people to realize that they are powerful, that every individual counts. And part of this personal rewilding would result in bridging that empathy gap. Part of the personal rewilding would have people act on those feelings, how horrified they are when they hear about different forms of animal abuse, how horrified they are when they read about the loss of land and landscapes, which effectively are the homes of other animals. And And in the end, it's our home as well. I was going to just say that in the end, we all benefit, that we all benefit from the positive and, you know, kind and beneficent behavior of other individuals and other humans. We all benefit. And without going into it, I always say it's a win-win when we care about other animals and their homes, it completely extends into caring about other humans and their homes. And one of the great aspects of compassionate conservation that I really like is it focuses on all care, all stakeholders. And so we're not trading off humans for non-humans or non-humans for humans. We're basically saying it all the- counts. It all counts, and we have a very complex and a very intertwined world, so it all counts, and if people just start focusing in a positive way on the things and the events and the animals, you know, with whom they are, with whom they identify or about whom they're really passionate, things will change. The one thing is, it ain't going to happen overnight. And so if you're doing this work and you think you're going to go home every night and get an A-plus stamped on your forehead, you better find something different because we need to have the long view. And I mean the long view that's going to transcend my life and maybe in your life and the lives of young kids now. This is a long-term commitment 
for a more compassionate and better world. I agree 100%, and that's often what I say to young people, that it's not going to happen in six months. It's I've been doing this for 20, 30 years. You've been doing this for decades. It's taking a long time, but the hopeful side, I'm an optimist as well, is that we are with the crazy train that the world is on right now, we have the opportunity to become something different. I, I call this shift that we're in, it's going to be the paradigm shift of evolution of humans the rest of the world will get along fine if we get in sync with it oh yeah i mean yeah i'm not going to go anywhere because that is another conversation (laughs) well we're going to have to have that one so um, today we're out of time thank you mark this has been a stimulating excellent conversation thank you so much my pleasure ellie anytime you bet and um folks out there listening please pick up any one of mark's books and uh the most recent one the animal's agenda freedom compassion and coexistence in the human age and check out his blog uh his site i'm sorry and his uh articles uh at markbeckoff.com and please share this episode and while in the meantime step out into our wild world thank you again for joining us this week be sure to tune in next monday at 11 a.m eastern time 8 a.m pacific time for another edition of our wild world with your host ellie weiss on the voice america variety channel think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now